Okay, off we are now. July the 19th, 2015. Lecture discussion number 204 on the Book of Romans. And well, uh, with this, with the announcement this past week that uh, the United States has a nuclear weapons agreement with Iran slash Persia, I feel required that we spend a little time, spend a little of our time on this development. And here's another shock for you that Bill the the cow mentioned in the pregame for us up here, but another shock. The eugenics movement uh, is brutal and cruel and evil, and it lies. There's a shock, huh? Anyway, any and all signed covenants that affect the nation of Israel needs to be discussed, just like anything that is applicable to Sodom needs to be discussed, because Sodom plays a prominent role as does covenants with respect to the end of the age of the Gentiles and the end of the, uh, just prior to the tribulation or pre-tribulational events. First of all, this treaty, and it is a treaty between the United States government and the Iranian government, is not, is not, make no mistake, it is not the covenant of Daniel 9, 26, and 27. The covenant of Daniel 9, 26, and 27 is what the Antichrist confirms, and that's a document that begins the tribulation. Once that covenant of the Antichrist is signed and confirmed, that is what starts the tribulational period. So, nothing else does that, and it's obviously it's signed by Israel, and it is signed by the Antichrist, the one that has control of the world at that time. So, this Iranian-USA agreement isn't signed by Israel. In fact, it's already being denounced by Israel and universally denounced by Israel. So everybody in Israel, all political uh, persuasions, agree that this, uh, uh, this treaty between the Iranian government and the United States government is, is uh, harmful, to say the least, to Israel. And they have totally and completely rejected it. So Israel is not a party to this at all. That tells you immediately it's not Daniel 9, 26, and 27. Israel rightly sees what this is. It's a piece of paper that facilitates Iran's rapid acquisition of nuclear weaponry. And when Iran gets that weapon, those weapon systems, they're going to de- attempt to destroy Israel immediately. Everybody in elementary school knows that. It isn't, doesn't take a great deal of education to know what Iran is going to do with nuclear weapons systems. They will deliver them, deploy them, uh, fire them immediately as soon as they are able. I've made that statement in the past and I, I stick by it. The Prime Minister of Israel, he already implied, if he didn't outright declare, I'm going to tell you he outright declared it, that Israel is going to preemptively destroy Iran's facilities. How long will they wait? Uh, I expect uh, that he will destroy Iran's facilities within 18 months. I'm confident of that. We'll find out. So far, my predictions have been pretty good, haven't they? How am I fine figuring this stuff out? I'm reading ahead. As Bill said, it's just you don't need a newspaper now. I just read. Go to Ezekiel. Go to Joel. Anyway, while we await what I think is an inevitable preemptive strike from Israel to Iran, the United Nations, is they're going to vote, right? They're going to vote to approve this. Absolutely, they're going to vote to approve it. This is a nakedly anti-Israel contract, and they're going to approve it. And note that the United Nations vote will precede any discussion or debate or decision by our United States Congress. That's not a happenstance accident. This presidential administration is purposed. They are not blindly feeling their way through this, this process. They have, they're following a planned system. The president and his administration expect the, an overwhelming approval from the United Nations. Why do they do that? Why are they certain that the approval of the United Nations will be overwhelming? Because the United Nations is a rabid, Jew-hating organization. They exist primarily to try to kill Israel. That's their number one focus. Occasionally they divert into something else, but they are rabidly anti-Jewish. And he believes that approval from this rabid 
Jew-hating United Nations is somehow going to deter the United States Congress from defeating his treaty. And I believe that uh, that's an accurate ex- expectation or assessment. I will be surprised if the United States Congress defeats this. Why? Why would I be surprised? Because at the end of the age of the Gentiles, everyone abandons Israel. They're isolated, they're alone, and they are targeted like they've never been targeted before. And they have been targeted a lot. So it's going to get so horrible for them. And we're watching, I think, that occur day by day. As it stands now, regardless of the outcome of the congressional action, even if it were to be defeated, which I don't think it will be, I'm confident that it won't be, I'm sad that it won't be, but I'm confident that, uh, that uh, the Congress will not be able to override a presidential veto. But regardless, irrespective of congressional action, Iran or Persia, I'm going to call them Iran-Persia a lot. Why do I call them Persia? Because the Bible calls them Persia. So get ready. Pay attention to what Persia is doing. Persia is going to have its economic sanctions diminished, greatly diminished, and, and that's going to allow billions and billions and billions of dollars for them to access. What will they do with that money? Well, they're going to try to kill Israel with it. They're going to militarize. And they can now purchase Russian conventional weapons. And that, will make, that money will make Russia far more powerful as well because their economy is under great stress. So I will immediately do two things with this treaty when the congressional veto, I'm sorry, the congressional override of the president's veto is not effective or not able. I'm, I can strengthen Iran, make them extremely powerful in the Middle East, and I will strengthen Russia simultaneously. Russia and Persia, two nations prominent in Ezekiel 38. So that's going to make Iran the dominant Islam military in the Middle East, and this alliance between Persia and Russia has not caught China unaware. Christopher and I were talking about the militarization rate of China. They are exploding their military capability. That's all they're doing. All this money, all of these microwaves and everything we bought at Walmart, all that money is going towards weaponry for China. They're going to be so powerful, it will be very difficult to stop them. Now, why are they, why are they pushing their, their economy is also catering, isn't it? But they're taking all the resources and extraordinary amount of money being spent for the military. Why? Be logical. Who, who begins to develop their military at the, at the, at the, I'm, I can't come up with my words right now. I need medicine. Why would I develop a military and affect my domestic economy adversely? Why would I do that? Well, if I'm a country that expects to go to war, that's exactly why I'll do it. They are expecting to go to war. Why? They have an energy issue. Coal, but their oil production is limited for the size of their population. They need a lot of food and a lot of energy. So they're militarizing. So obviously, uh, this contract, treaty, agreement, whatever you want to call it, is not a tribulational agreement. And if it's not a a tribulational agreement, then it is a pre-tribulational agreement. That's a big duh. Of course it is. If it isn't one, it's going to be the other, right? But uh, thus, we're going to have to decide specifically what pre-tribulational context is this United States-Persian Accord. Uh, Again, I submit, I've been doing it for months now, this is Ezekiel 38 being unveiled for us, another piece, another building block. And the ones who are wise are going to see it, and I ask this uh, all the time. I'll ask it again today and the weeks to come as well. How many see Ezekiel 38 coming in this world? How many people look at China and what they are doing, look at Russia, what they're doing, look at Persia and Turkey and Syria and Egypt and Libya, and say, wow, we are right on the precipice of this confederacy in Ezekiel 38 coming 
for Israel. I doubt that very many are doing it. I think that it is a very small percentage, uh, maybe 1% of the world. Russia is a central figure as the age of the Gentiles comes to a close. Ezekiel 38 and 39 tells us ultimately, go ahead and read ahead. Find out what's going to happen to the Russian nation. How is God going to respond when Russia attacks? The Russian nation is going to be decimated. Its army will be destroyed. Its lands are going to be burned. It will not be a functioning entity in the world. Russia, gone. That's what the Bible says. God has not forgotten what Stalin and Russia did to the Jews. What, what, what happened to the Jewish people under Russia. And he intends an accounting. He purposes to retaliate. As he also will to Germany and France. They will likewise burn. Have any real estate in France or Germany? Russia? Time to divest. Germany and France will experience a recompensing, as they should, as they deserve. Both were evil to the Jews in World War II. Obviously, Germany far more than France. But France was no friend, no ally of Israel. France is an ally of Iran. France is one of the contracting countries that built those bunkers that house all of that uh, nuclear material, as is Russia. But certainly, what we are as United States citizens, we're naturally interested in the action of the United States. And I want to watch what Congress does. Who within the Congress will support this attempt to destroy Israel? Israel sees it as an attempt to destroy them. Are you going to tell me they're wrong? Who will support this attempt to destroy Israel? Who will side with Israel? So some are going to vote to destroy and some are going to vote to support or defend. What's that? And they're going to go on the record. We're in Genesis 12.3, aren't we? I will bless, I will curse. I will bless those who bless Israel. I will curse those who curse Israel. Every single congressman in this country is going to have to vote. Yes or no. For Israel or against Israel. Just put yourself in that position for a second. Let's imagine you're of the political party that wants you to support this agreement. And if you don't support this agreement, they're going to unfund you. That's the one of the, by the way, I, I, here's a divergence. Nothing makes me laugh more than that commercial where the older ladies are unfriending each other. That's hilarious. I unfriend you. There's nothing to me more stupid than unfriending people on some on bookface or whatever it is. Why that is such why that is such a horrible thing to to do to another person, I will never understand. Please unfriend me, all of you. I will not be I will not be hurt. Uh, anyway, I I don't know why that happened. More medicine. That's the worst you can do to me, holy mackerel, honey child. Am I in good? <laughs> I'm in a good place. <coughs> but here we have a, rec- a record of those who will curse Israel and those who will bless Israel. And there you are. What are you going to do? I can't even begin to imagine voting to curse Israel. I can't even imagine it. But we're going to see that happen. Now, some are going to accuse me of an oversimplification here with respect to my phrasing of the question. Uh, I counter that uh, with more questions, as you know. That's my predisposition. It's my method. If this agreement is something other than a capitulation, something other than a forfeiture of nuclear weapons to a nation that is apocalyptically uh, bent and has this incredible hatred towards Israel. If it's not that, then you tell me what it is. What else could it be? That's what Israel thinks it is. They ought to know. What else is it? Israel is, is not benefited by this. They're, they're under a death sentence by it. Let's ask another question. What nation in the Middle East not allied with Iran is helped by this treaty? 
who now can be denied access, I'm sorry, who can be denied access to weaponized nuclear technologies? If Iran can have these systems, who's worse than Iran? If I have, if I'm, back to my gunfight analogy, if I give the most evil guy in the room, pick your villain, I don't know who you would like to pick, but this is the most evil villain in the room, and I give him a gun, well, i got to give guns to everybody. i got to give guns. There is nobody who I can't give guns to now, right? Well, that's the, that's the analogy here. The answer screams back. There is no one worse than Iran. There's no country more so dangerous to the world than Iran. Iran will kill millions and millions if they're able. And as soon as they are able. So thus again, who's going to vote for a catastrophic war? And who's going to protect Israel? Somebody's going to vote. And that vote will allow Iran to detonate a nuclear weapon in a, in a large city. Who's going to vote for that? I mean, Iran will likely try to do it here, uh, regardless. But why would you vote? You can't stop evil from being evil at all times. But why do you facilitate it? And we're going to see. Not in my lifetime has it been so clearly defined. I can't think of another time where Genesis 12:3. I can go on the record and complete. Either I will choose to bless or I will choose to curse. Our Secretary of State has been equated to Neville Chamberlain. If you're not familiar with Neville Chamberlain, he's the man who's essentially enabled Adolf Hitler to begin murdering millions of people. And as has already been uh, roundly stated, to compare the current United States Secretary of State to Neville Chamberlain is a great insult to Neville Chamberlain. Neville Chamberlain did not make the kind of, this isn't a mistake, he did not make the kind of decision that our current Secretary of State is making. Because the wholesale slaughter of the Jews during World War II was unanticipated. That was the Holocaust. No one anticipated that a country would do that. And no one disputes Iran's intentions here. Everyone knows that they will kill Jews wherever they can find them. They're going to detonate weapons if they are able in Israel, certainly. But... Not Israel alone. They're going to detonate them in New York City. They're going to detonate them in Florida. They're going to detonate them in London. That's what Iran will do. Everyone knows it. That's got a, that's gone past the fourth grade. But like I said, we can read a, read ahead. We have a timeless book, and it says that Iran will not be successful. They will not prevail. They will be destroyed. The Iranian people will be dispersed for a time. The damage that they do, we can only uh, speculate. But they will not succeed. They will not destroy Israel. What else they're able to destroy, we'll wait and find out. God will note who voted for what. But Israel, the Iranian nation will be gone for a period of time. God brings them back, by the way. Persia is converted and eventually restored during the millennium. But know with certainty that this regime in Iran will fail and be judged. Again, what we're witnessing is this recording process. Everyone will know and everyone will know that everyone will know. We'll have countries that vote. We'll have men and women that vote. It'll be tremendous. The votes of the world nations will soon be declared, followed by the votes of Congress and the votes of all the political parties in all those nations. It's going to be extraordinary. And I'm fascinated by it. I can't imagine the guy that gets up in the morning and says, I'm going to vote against God. That's my plan. And they're going to do it without fear. I had a business partner many years ago. He would always say, where is the fear of God? Why do you do these things? You know God is coming. You know that someday you will stand before him. Where is the fear of God? Why do they not fear God? Why will they do this? This, is, this has got popcorn written all over it, right? Don't miss this day. 
when the United Nations votes to curse Israel. Don't miss that day. When the Congress votes, don't miss that one either. But especially don't miss the vote to override the veto. That's going to be a fascinating day. Where's the fear? Okay. That was fun, huh? Another seeker-sensitive, fuzzy-wuzzy, emotional, joyful event at Cliffside Community Chapel. <coughs> Where did we leave off? Actually, I left off all over the place. I, I'm, uh, I'm starting to make my... You can look at my, my little pieces of paper. Here in the margins are all the things that I have to get to. And I remind myself of them. See, they're all circled. I have... That's just from this lecture that I have to repeat or look back at. I have thousands of these, and they're all that way. But anyway, I, I, I've got lots of left-offs and leftovers, whatever. But I, the fig tree, the ten lepers, the vine and the olive tree, and the lump and the root, the stripping of the leaves, Aaron's rod, the woman and the judge, the Pharisees and the tax collectors, the doubt-free faith, just to name a few, Right? Those are the ones that I thought I had to get to first. And so that's where I'm focusing. It bears repeating. Let me repeat this part because it, I definitely do not try to make it as clear as I can the first time I do it. That's purpose. That's my plan. It's my method. I want you to try to do it on your own, and most of you do, and I'm very proud of you for that. But it bears repeating that God walks. This is God, and he walks up to a fig tree, and he strips it of his leaves. He withers it, right? And God also does the same thing, if you will. It's the exact same thing. He removes the fig leaves from Adam and Eve. So I have Adam and Eve, and he takes their fig leaves off, and he walks up to this fig tree, and he strips it of its leaves. I have God in two places stripping fig leaves off of one a tree, the other people. Okay? I'm telling you that the motive, those two passages are clearly component, are compliments. And therefore we start out, we begin by considering the motive of Christ for cursing the fig tree as the same as stripping off the fig leaves from Adam. And, and we put them together as the same. I look at both of those passages, they are so much the same, I have to assume that all elements are very similar, if not the same. And I said that poorly. I know that, so let me try again. Is it proper to assign the purpose of removing Adam's fig leaves to the withering of the fig tree? I say yes. I believe it is so. Again, the Old Testament compliment. Repeat it one more time. Make sure I get it in. The Old Testament compliment of the cursing of the fig tree is Genesis 3.21. So whenever I'm reading this cursing of the fig tree, I go right back to Genesis 3.21. Whoever, by the way, wrote Genesis 3.21 was pretty smart, wasn't he? Because he knew immediately that, the, that uh, the cursing of the fig tree or the withering of the fig tree would directly connect to Adam and Eve's tunics, their garments of blood. So who is able to figure that out? I have two different authors thousands of years apart and somehow it works perfect. Who could write it? Human beings don't write that. Only somebody outside of time who directs them can write that. Only the someone, by the way, who made the tunics, who removed the fig leaves, who protected the tree of life, who drove out the man and the woman, lest they reach out and take also from the tree of life, now that they, are the, the, now that they the man and the woman, were in a fallen state. Only that someone would curse the fig tree and remove the fig leaves again, withering the tree from its root. Obviously, it's another piece of evidence that Christ is God himself. And he's using the parable of the cursed or the withered fig tree to explain what he did in Genesis 3.21 through 24 with respect to Adam and Eve. I believe it or not, I think you can go all the way back to um, 14, Genesis 3.14. But now we know the basics of Genesis 3.21 through 24. The fig leaves cannot atone for sin. We know that. So they had to be removed. Sin has to be covered by innocent blood. So it's necessary to remove the fig leaves because they're not atonement for sin. 
that takes you now to why he curses the fig tree, right? He's taking the leaves off because the fig tree is not uh, appropriate. So what is the fig tree parable ultimately? But sin must be covered by innocent blood, and Jesus Christ is the one who not only takes the fig leaves off, but he's the one who takes his blood and replaces and covers the sin. So add all that to the cursed fig tree, the only thing in the New Testament that Christ curses, by the way. Why is that? Why did he curse it? Clearly, there's a connection to the curse of Genesis 14, or 3.14 to 19. So this fig tree and the curse of Genesis have a relationship. God's curse must equal or relate to God's curse. There is no other explanation that could be applicable here. So, at the least, just do this at the least. Whenever you see God curse something, go, go immediately to where God first cursed something. It's called the first mention. First place of God cursing something, Genesis 3, 14 through 24. He's cursing a fig tree in Matthew and in Mark, Matthew 21, Mark 11. Go back and look at the curse in Genesis 3. It's the least you should do. If you do that, you'll be in good shape. So connect passages where God pronounces curses and begin by assigning them to Genesis 3:14 through 19. By the way, Genesis 12:3. I will curse those who curse Israel. I will bless those who bless Israel. That has to have something to do with the fig tree as well, as well as Genesis 3:14 through 24. Okay, once we have at the least established that and once we have at least begun the study process properly, now we get to ask the simple questions. So let's do that. We're going to be in Mark 11, chapter 11, by the way, the whole chapter, 1 through 21. And But before we read it, there's a constant reminder that I have to give you to always, when you have Mark 11, you have to also add Matthew 21. Do not separate Matthew 21 from any study on Matthew 11. Establish all of the evidence of the cursing of the fig tree. Mark 11 is cursing of the fig tree. Matthew 21, cursing of the fig tree. Go get the fig trees. Once you've got the fig tree established, once you know what the fig tree is really about, why he cursed it, it takes you back to Genesis 3, right? But once you've got all the curses figured out, what it is, now you can go on to Matthew 24. And when you examine Matthew 24, you have to simultaneously examine Luke 17 and Luke 21. Got that? Probably not. Let me rephrase it. I know that was unusually confusing. When I wrote it, I went, oh, this isn't going to (laughs) work. Yes, sir. When do I get to the fruit aspect? I will get to that in just a minute. Do not get ahead of the lecturer. It's on page 10. (laughs) Nice try. We're only on 8. But anyway, I know that what I just said was unusually confusing, and I wrote, as opposed to unusually confusing. Okay? I'm sorry, I got it backwards. That was unusually confusing as opposed to usually confusing. That's confusing. You see, I have normal confusion, don't I? Intentional confusion. It's typical. It's customary here at Cliffside. Um, I plan it. It's a planned bewilderment. I do it on purpose. I do not want anyone to ever come into any lecture I do and go, that Bible sure was simple. You do that, I have failed you. I want you to go, wow, this is the most complicated book I have ever, could ever even imagine, much less How in the world was it written? You see, knowing what it really is tells you who wrote it. That's what I do. Planned bewilderment. Or in this case, ordinary bewilderment. But I I have unaccustomed remote disorder, which occurs mostly by accident. Sometimes my disorder is at a much higher level, and that probably applies to what I just said. There is the cursing of the fig tree, okay? And then there's the parable of the fig tree. So what I'm telling you to do is take on the cursing of the fig tree before you take on the parable of the fig tree. 
So Matthew 21 and Mark 11, before you take on Matthew 24, Luke 17, and Luke 21. One is the cursing of the fig tree. I think we should do that first. I believe you'll agree with me eventually. And then we now figure out the parable of the fig tree. In other words, the cursing of the fig tree, in my view, explains the parable of the fig tree. So if you ever read the parable of the fig tree and all the stuff that comes with it, all the commentators who have decided what it means, I will tell you, don't decide anything until you understand the cursing of the fig tree. It's two separate units, one precedes the other. And of course, the cursing of the fig tree is Mark 11, Matthew 21, and Genesis 3, right? 14 through 24. Parable is Matthew 24, Luke 17, and Luke 21. By the way, more than that. We'll get to it in a minute. But what we're doing, my diabolical little lesson plan, is establishing the curse of the fig tree in order to correctly understand the parable of the fig tree. And then we progress to Luke 17, 32, which is, you know, is remember Lot's wife. And once I get remember Lot's wife understood, uh, once I, I hope that I get you to understand it, now uh, we can make accurate determinations on the anatomy of the signs of the abducted bride or the sign of the abducted bride. So that's my order. That's my lesson plan in case you thought I didn't have one. Let's ask a bunch of questions. For example, let's ask about the aftermath. Who knows the bridegroom has come and taken his bride. See, I asked you, who knows about Ezekiel 38? It's happening before your eyes on television every day. Who knows that's Ezekiel 38? How many people know Ezekiel 38 is on the 6 o'clock news? How many people? What percentage of the population of this country? So now I'm going to ask you, after the bridegroom has come and abducted his bride, who knows that? I've asked that question in the, a few weeks ago, and the last week I, I keep asking it. I've long had the position, you know that, albeit it's not, I haven't done it very publicly. Uh, only recently, that only those who would know the bridegroom is coming would know he had come. Wouldn't that make sense? If you don't even know there's a bridegroom, how in the world are you ever going to know he's come? So you've got to at least know there's a bridegroom. So who knows there's a bridegroom? Who knows that the rapture of the church, the taken bride, who knows that that is on the Hebrew betrothal ceremony, steps 9, 10, and 11? Who knows that sequence? How many people? Let's just take churches here in Anchorage. How many? Not very many. I had a wonderful letter I should bring to you that Dr. Fruchtenbaum wrote me many, many years ago. He said, when he came up here, he was stunned that he ran into a church that knew all of this. I should read it to you some week. Very proud of my uh, of the group that was there. Some of you are still here. Most are not. Look around. I ran them off again. Wore them out. <laughs> but I, I do know that you folks understand that there is a bridegroom and that he's coming back on those steps. That's very exciting for me. But I ask all the time, what percentage of this city knows that? What percentage of the churches? One percent? Half of one percent? So, if you don't know the bridegroom is supposed to come and you don't know on what pattern he is supposed to come, how will you know uh, it, that he abducted his bride, and, and again, I, I don't think that uh, very, I don't think very many are going to know, since those who are within the bride, even though they don't know that they're within the bride, and they don't know that Christ is the bridegroom, they're just completely oblivious, which I think describes overwhelmingly the church condition today. Uh, they're going to go. They're going to be in the abducted, so they're gone. So who's left? Who, who if, if the ignorant are going, then who's left that's going to know that Christ came? Who remains that knows the bridegroom came? And I'm telling you, and I've said in the last few weeks over and over again, the only one that is even on the table that might know is the remnant wife, is Israel. If the bride is gone, then all I have really left to, to discuss is the wife which is Israel. 
I got a letter from somebody uh, who shall remain nameless, Jennifer, who told me, so this just makes so much sense. Jennifer from Arizona. Why don't people understand this wife and bride? And why don't they get that? Well, that's a good question. I don't know the answer to that. But I have a whole bunch of people inside the bride that don't know they're inside the bride and they have no idea that it's a bridegroom bride system and they don't have any understanding of the Hebrew betrothal ceremony and they don't know what the steps are and they don't know what steps is right around the corner. They have no idea. They're going to be as shocked as anybody. I don't want you to be shocked. I want you to know, okay, this has got to be somewhere in this area. Eventually, we're going to investigate the secrecy and the suddenness of the abduction, though not for a couple of weeks. But I want you to ask this. Why a secret event, the rapture of the church, the abduction of the bride, the taking of the bride, that is a secret event, and it's concealed. In fact, it's a mystery. It's the sixth mystery of the eleven mysteries. He calls it the mystery. There are very few people, I've told you many, many times, you have a responsibility. You are going to be held accountable to know all eleven mysteries. This is number six. Who's going to know the mysteries? Only those people who intend to know the mysteries. What percentage is that? If I went around, let me repeat the question in a different form, to every church in town and said, here's a piece of paper, list the 11 mysteries. How many would give me 11? I'm going to tell you probably zero. We're going to be held accountable of the 11 mysteries, what they are and what they mean. The sixth mystery is the translation of the saints or the rapture or the taking of the bride, the abduction of the bride. It is a secret. It is a mystery. It's concealed. If it's concealed before it happens, is it going to be concealed after it happens? Will it remain a mystery? It happens suddenly. It happens at midnight. It's shrouded in mystery. It is the sixth of the eleven mysteries. Why is a mystery of God a mystery if it's to be revealed as a sign to the entire world? Do you think he's going to do that? I don't think he's going to do that. Okay. I'm just asking. Doing good. Let's go to Mark 11 and read that. Again, don't separate Mark 11 from Matthew 21. I'm doing it because I'm a highly skilled, trained professional. And I know not to do that. I'm breaking the rules because I know that I'm not supposed to break the rules. If you know you're not supposed to break the rules, then I give you dispensation to break the rule. (laughs) Here we go, Mark 11. Now, when they drew near Jerusalem, so God is coming to Jerusalem. Whoa, pay attention to that. To Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples. And he said to them, by the way, why, two disciples? Never mind. And he said to them, go into the village opposite you, and as soon as you have entered it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has sat. Loose it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Is anyone going to say to them, why are you doing this? When God says, if anyone happens to say, guess what's going to, never mind. Say, the Lord has need of it, and immediately he will send it here. So they went their way and found the colt tied by the door outside on the street, and they loosed it. But some of those who stood there said to them, what are you doing loosing the colt? And they spoke to them just as Jesus had commanded, so they let them go. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their clothes on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their clothes on the road, and others cut down leafy branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Those, then those who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna, which you know means save us. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple. Okay, did you notice that? 
And Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple. So when he had looked around at all things, as the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So far, so good. Now we're at what? The cursing of the fig tree. I'm stopping so that you can digest where we got, where we were, and where we are now. We're now at the cursing of the fig tree, which is going to get us to the parable of the fig tree, which is going to get us to remember Lot's wife, which is going to get us to the abduction of the bride. Right Now, the next day, when they had come out from Bethany, he was hungry. Boy, you should immediately, I said last week, that should just immediately go, whoa, something is really amazing here. He was hungry. I got it underlined in question marks all around it. Just in case one of my children finds this Bible someday, they'll know that that's something going on there. And seeing from afar, what? A fig tree having leaves. What's the obvious question there? How far can God see? How far is afar? Who else could see it? He went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. Wow. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. Was he surprised? Please say no. For it was not the season for figs. In response, Jesus said to it, he's now talking to the fig tree. Let no one eat fruit from you. I'm sorry, let no one eat fruit with you ever again. And his disciples heard it. They heard. So they went to Jerusalem. Then Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. Why are they selling doves? What are they doing here? They're selling salvation, by the way. He won't let them sell salvation. Salvation must be free. And he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. Then he taught, saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of thieves. And the scribes and chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him, for they feared him, because all the people were astonished at his teaching. In other words, he's saying salvation is free, and the people were astonished. And it's free to anyone. And you've made this a den of thieves. Like all the churches are now. Sorry. Not really. Fake sorry. And the scribes and chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him. I said that. When the evening, when the evening had come, he went out of the city. Verse 20. Now in the morning as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter remembered said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered away. So Jesus answered and said to them, have faith in God. How is that an answer? For I surely I say to you, whoever says this to the mountain, he be removed and be cast in the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he said will be done, he will have whatever he says. Therefore I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them and you will have them. How does that answer fit with, hey, look, the fig tree's dead. You've got to make that connection because they do connect. God didn't make a mistake. Duh. Right? And whatever you, and whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him, and your Father in heaven may also forgive you, you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. By the way, I told you I have to get to the woman and the unjust judge, right? And I have to get to the tax collector and the Pharisee. Keep that in mind. Then, then they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority to do these things? What things are they talking about? What's he done? We just read it. What's he done? He's withered a fig tree. Right? What else has he done? By what authority do you do these things? Put it in the context. But Jesus answered and said to them, I also will ask you one question. Uh Uh-oh. Not good news. 
then answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. I'll ask you one question. You get it right, I'll tell you by what authority. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? Answer me. And they reasoned among themselves. The little Pharisees went off and had a committee meeting. Right? And they said, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then do you not believe him? But wait a minute. He said, I'll ask you one question. But they projected onto him what they were trying to do. Their, their question was a trap, right? However he answered it, they were going to answer, ask another question. But he says specifically, I will also will ask you one question. They reason among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, they, they feared the people, for all counted John to have been a prophet indeed. So they answered and said to Jesus, we do not know. Boy, that was true. They did not know what authority Jesus had. And Jesus answered and said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. You do not know, and I'm not going to tell you who I am. Essentially, right? Okay? But I wanted, again, let me repeat this part of it. You've got to go fast. Notice the components and the order, or if you will, I, listen, you know that I've done everything in the construction process that you could imagine that you could do, and I never benefited economically from any of that. If you're listening to me on the Internet, do anything but construction. Don't touch it. It's the tools of ignorance. It's like catching in baseball. But it, I, because I've done that, I look for the construction process all the time. I look for the foundation, and then I look for the framing, and then I look for all the technical aspects that are inside the framing that are eventually hidden by the finishes, the sheetrock um, and, the, and the crown molding and the, you know, all the trim, right? So the foundation, the framing, the hidden beneath the surface uh, within the framing, and the finishes. And I wrong time recognize that that's the way my human body is designed. I have a structure, I have a foundation, I have the seen and the unseen. I have bones and muscles and nerves and connectivities, um, neurological systems. I have unseen things, connective tissues. I have the appliances, the hearts, the lungs, the brain, all of that. And then on the outside I have this uh, fabric, if you will, skin, hair, that can be seen. Uh, the Bible, his Bible, God's Bible, God's Word also has this kind of structure. It's exactly the same as his creation. It's how he does things, right? The author of this book is the creator of my body that is obvious to me. So, now, list maker is going to list. I have this entry, don't I? I start out with an entry. Christ is going to have them go get a donkey. Essentially, it's a young donkey that has never been ridden. That means that it has some kind of, of a capability to be used in an uh, offering of, of a sort. And he sends two disciples. So I have the entry part now of this. Uh, he sends two disciples. He goes after a colt or a young don donkey. Same thing. Clothes. I got clothes in, the, in, in this, right? They were spread out. And branches. Leafy branches. If I'm going to start dealing with branches and leafies, okay, branches, I, I got to go back to Moses throwing branches into water, don't I? Aaron's rod again. All of that stuff's going to come back. Hosanna, save us now. Save us now. They were screaming, save us now. By the way, how many people are in this parade and who's singing or who's, uh, who's yelling Hosanna? Who's in front? Who's in back? Let me ask another question. How many clothes on the road? I'll get to that in a minute. And then after that, we go to the temple. Right? Here's my order. Here's my foundation. Two guys go after a donkey. That's my, my concrete. And I got, now I'm, I'm building stuff. I'm framing. Clothes, leaf, save us now. Go to the temple. And I have this inspection. Right? He's going around inspecting. Who's going around inspecting again? Omniscient God is conducting an inspection. 
then I have the next day. So, next day. I'll put that here real fast. Now's my time. Doing okay. Then, now, oh, this is the inspection part. So, first I have the entry. Now I have the inspection. Uh, and then I have the parable of the fig tree. And he's hungry. And he's afar. How far is afar? How hungry is he? If perhaps... Who's this again? Omniscient God. Does omniscient God ever say he goes to see if perhaps it might have some fruit on it? Does he know there's fruit on it or not? Of course he knows. Why that language? He found nothing. Was he surprised? Of course not. Found nothing... But leaves. Ooh, I have leaves here. I have leaves there. He found nothing but leaves. No fruit. And then he says, let no one eat. Eat. Let no one eat ever again. Okay. We'll stop there. Then what comes after that, by the way? So I have the parable of the fig tree, followed by the ins- or in front of the, after the inspection. So it goes entry, inspection, parable, and then cleansing of the temple. I hope it occurred to you that that order is perfect. That is not a bunch of unrelated events. There are no unrelated events in the Bible. That order is exactly the order. As he enters, he has the entry thing that leads to the inspection. As soon as this is done, we have to do the inspection. As soon as the temple is inspected, it's time now for the parable of the fig tree. As soon as I'm done with the parable, it's time now to go back and cleanse that temple that I inspected. Does that make sense? The order is profound. He's entering into Jerusalem. Jehovah Jireh Salam. So, God provides peace. He follows the inspection. He follows entering into Jerusalem by the, with the inspection of the temple, then the parable of the fig tree, and now the cleansing of the, of the temple. So, as is our custom, now it's time for the most obvious of the obvious questions as we wrap this up. Why two disciples? Why not three disciples? How many disciples does it take to get a goat? In this case, a donkey. Hey, you two guys. Not you ten guys. Not you four guys. You two. Seems like I have to have what? I have to have witnesses. He sends two witnesses to get the donkey. Why does God need or want a young donkey? By the way, who is this anyone that's going to say to you? And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? So you can imagine two of his disciples go in to Jerusalem and they find a donkey. Or the village, actually. They go into the village and, um, and they go um, and they find the donkey. How many people surround them as they're stealing the donkey? And all, and all those people say, hey, why are you stealing the donkey? And they say back to them, Jesus Christ said to take the donkey. And they go, ooh, we to take the donkey. Your donkey, you want the donkey, take the donkey. God wants the donkey. They threw a bunch of clothes on the ground in front of him, and Right? What's the obvious question there? Let me read it for you. Um, And many spread their clothes on the road. How many is many? How many clothes do I have on this road? How many people have no clothes now? Do you have them completely unclothed? What's your plan? I want you to imagine. Do I have a bunch of naked people with no clothes all over the road while Christ goes across it with a donkey? 
I got some people said, well, I'm going to throw branches and leaves. Did they go and grab the clothes and put them in front as he, I mean, how many clothes do I have? Is there any clothless people out there? What is the clothing ratio, I guess, or the mathematical element here? How many clothes are spread? How many clothes are remaining on the person? Why did he inspect the temple? How did they know he was hungry? It's the same question, isn't it? Do you understand that? Let me repeat. Why did he inspect the temple? How did they know he was hungry? I've asked the same question twice in a row. This is omniscient God. He knows all things at all times. What is his purpose of inspecting the temple? Does he know everything that's in the temple? He does. Why does he go through this process of inspecting it? Why does he? How do they know he's hungry? It's the same thing. And obviously, the inspection is the same as his purpose for withering, stripping the leaves from the fig tree. And they knew he was hungry because he told them he was hungry. They knew he had inspected the temple because he showed them he had inspected the temple. How are they going to know that omniscient God inspected the temple unless he shows them? He's going about showing them things and telling them things. They would never know he was hungry unless he told them he was hungry. They would never know he's inspecting the temple or had. In- they would never know that he knew there was something wrong with the temple unless he inspects or tells them or shows them. So it's the same. So now you got to ask, why did he tell them and why did he show them this inspection? What's he hungry for? He says, "I'm hungry. I'm going to. I'm." A long way away. God is a long way away from a fig tree and he's hungry for fruit. What is hungry in God's definition? What is fruit? When he came to the fig tree from afar, from a great distance, there was no fruit on the fig tree. He inspected the temple, didn't he? And what else did he do? He inspected the fig tree. He inspected the temple. Did he find any fruit in the temple? Found no fruit. He he inspected the fig tree and found no fruit. So I would expect the inspecting of the temple to be followed by the cursing. I put parable. Sorry. The cursing of the fig tree. I could have easily have put the inspection of the fig tree, can't I? So first he comes in and then he inspects the temple and he inspects the fig tree. So obviously the two are the same, somehow. Are two parts of a whole. The consequence from his inspection of the fig tree is that this fig tree would never again be eaten from. What's the implication of that? It seems if I say you will never again or ever again, the implication would be at some point, somebody must have ate something from it. He doesn't say, no one has ever eaten from this fig tree. He says, ever again. So why ever again? What had happened to the fig tree? Whatever happened to the fig tree had to have happened to the inspection. Because what's he do to the, te- or to the temple? So what's he do to the, the temple? Anyway, the question, uh, uh, back to this, by what authority? Christ demonstrates his authority to take the cult. He demonstrates his authority to inspect his house. There is only one house of God. If you call yourself as a church the house of God, you have done something ignorant. There is only one house of God. That is the temple in Jerusalem. That's his house. It's the only thing he calls his house. The church is not a building. It is people. The house is a specific thing, a place that he resides. You make the case that we're individual temples, I won't argue. But there's no building that is his house outside of Jerusalem, outside of the Jerusalem temple. So he comes, he's the owner of his house, and he inspects his own house. They asked him, by what authority do you have to inspect this house? Well, the only person that can inspect that house is God. That's why he inspects it. And he has the authority to wither the fig tree. And that is a good place to stop, except for this. 
the fig tree, I'm sorry, the trap or the test of the Pharisees. They said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority to do these things? That's a trap. They always are trying to trap him. Why? And he didn't answer them. He didn't say, I'm God. He said, if you'll tell me, if you'll answer this question about John the Baptist, was he from heaven or was he just another man? Was he a prophet or not? John the Baptist, a prophet or not? You answer that, I'll tell you I'm God. And they went, we don't know. We don't know if he was a prophet or if he was just a guy. Well, then I won't tell you I'm God. But I have this authority because I'm God. Next week, we'll clean it all up.